0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network special series New Books and Celebration Studies. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm the host for this episode. Our guest for today is Dr. Ray Allen, author of Jump Up Caribbean Carnival Music in New York City, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Jump Up! Caribbean Carnival Music in New York City is a comprehensive history of Trinidadian Calypso and steel band music in the diaspora. Blending urban studies, oral history, archival research, and ethnography, Jump Up! examines how members of New York's diverse anglophile Caribbean communities forged transnational identities through the self-conscious embrace transformation and hybridization of select carnival musical styles and performances. The book addresses the issues of music, migration, and identity, exploring the complex cycling of musical practices and the back-and-forth movement of singers, musicians, arrangers, producers, and cultural entrepreneurs between New York's diasporic communities and the Caribbean. And our guest, Dr. Ray Allen, is professor of music at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. So welcome, Dr. Ray Allen.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you.
0: Yeah, looking forward to our chat. So before we get into the book, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. Um... Well, I'm, as you said, I'm, I'm an ethnomusicologist, um, been teaching at Brooklyn College for many years. Um, I was actually um, uh, born and raised in a uh, New York suburb out on Long Island, uh, but I've been living here in Brooklyn uh, since uh, 1985. Uh, so I kind of feel Brooklyn is is uh, my home. It's where my uh, kids were brought up and so forth. Um, I. Um, I play the piano a bit, but I'm not really a musician. I'm a scholar and writer. Uh, and I should say from the um, outset that um, I am not Caribbean or West Indian. I am white. Uh, and so, um, you know, I come to this as something of a cultural outsider. Um, however, since I have, as I said, lived in Brooklyn for so many years, I've been going to Brooklyn's Carnival uh, since uh, 1984. So um, I'm more than a casual observer, let's say that. Um, And um, uh, I've had many West Indian students uh, at Brooklyn College. So I I feel a real connection to the community in that sense. Um, But um, just to identify myself, I am not uh, Caribbean, uh, nor do I play in a steel band or so forth. Um, I I come to it, uh, you know, as an outsider looking in, but as one who's quite attached to the community. So um, how's that?
0: Yeah, I think that helps a lot with kind of framing, you know, the context in which this book, you know, came, you know, in that way. And I'm interested to hear more, too, about what you were just mentioning, your first experiences of, you know, the Brooklyn Carnival in 1984. What was that like for you?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania then, and um, one of our I had a a class in Afro um, diasporic music, uh, including carnival music, New World carnivals. Um, And um, one of our professors, Morton Marks, uh, you know, who lived in Brooklyn said, you know, you guys ought to come up. Uh, You know, Penn is in Philadelphia. said, You guys got to get on the train and come up here and have a look at this. It's an amazing event, this uh, West Indian Carnival. It takes place on Labor Day. And uh, so uh, one of my buddies and I did this, and um, I was just truly mesmerized. I had one of those epiphany moments, you know, when I saw Eastern Parkway with just the throngs of people um, pulling steel bands uh, up the parkway, the, the big um, uh, trucks playing um Sorry, that again, And uh, the big sound trucks playing, uh, you know, the latest soca hits and so forth. And uh, it, it was just totally amazing. And uh, in those days, you could go out uh, into the parade itself, into the crowd. They didn't have the barriers that they do today. Uh, and so, you know, it's quite participatory in that sense. So, you know, we got out there and helped pull one of the steel pans up the parkway, uh, one of the steel bands up the parkway. And as I say, it was just this amazing moment. I fell in love with the music. Um, And ever since then, I, um, you know, have been going to carnival. So, uh, yeah, I I, I was a convert early on.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting to hear about your experiences, early experiences rather, um, in carnival and, you know, having gone through your book, how much you've, you know, experienced it over the years and you know what has now become like you're saying a home um so that's really interesting positionality wise in what you bring to the table there um and then another kind of like contextual question here you know m- maybe a more obvious question what does the first part of your book's title jump up refer to <laughs>
1: Oh sure. Well, jump up is a kind of general term uh in West Indian uh culture and carnival that means just the kind of exuberant let yourself go um uh dance um literally jump up in the air. Uh you know, um a lot of Afro-Caribbean dancing is getting low and going down with the hips and so forth, but it's also a kind of verticality of jumping up and down to the beat, especially to very loud bass-heavy soca music uh and so jumping up means just, you know, Getting out there and dancing. And that sort of captures the essence of this incredibly vibrant, uh, mm-hmm. celebratory music that happens during Carnival. So yeah, jump up. And there there are many songs uh uh that, you know, with a title Everybody Jump Up, Jump Up and Wave Your Flag, uh so forth and so on. So it seems like an appropriate title.
0: Yeah, that's I wish I could I'll have to try to watch, I guess footage of these carnival celebrations because now i'm kind of intrigued by you're talking about how participatory it was like without the barriers and this idea of jump up that sounds really like i said earlier fun and very
1: interesting let me just (laughs) encourage everybody listening to um just hop onto youtube and just put in brooklyn carnival uh and you'll find numerous numerous uh youtubes of various quality but videos uh of of the um uh eastern parkway uh, carnival quote parade uh, and you'll get a sense of just how um uh, uh stuffed with people it is <laughs> how, how dense and how much activity is going on and so forth so yeah please it's on youtube take advantage
0: yeah that sounds like a great idea to do to kind of bring more a multi-sensory aspect to the text too in that way um and then Going into the book itself, of course, you know, starting on the introduction, you know, you kind of lay a couple of ideas out for the readers that I think kind of help uh, clarify the through lines, you know, of the text. You know, the first of which is that idea of diasporic transnationalism, which is a way to quote describe the cyclical flow of musical expressions among multiple sites. And then the other idea being hybridization which is, quote, the dynamic mixing that takes place during cross-cultural contact. So can you kind of explain to our listeners how these ideas play out, you know, in these processes that have led to the manifestation of Carnival in New York from
1: Trinidad? Sure. Um, Well, the idea of diasporic uh, transnationalism is something that's become uh, increasingly popular in global studies and particularly global cultural studies and ethnomusicology. So the old model was that people, uh, in terms of diasporic flow of culture, people would come from some place and they'd bring their culture with them, including their music, and they'd land there and then, you know, the music would somehow develop. And there wasn't a lot of contact back with the homeland from where they came. And so if you say dealing with 19th century Irish music and uh, a fiddler who came to New York uh, um, say in, uh, 1870 brings his fiddle, um, and helps establish an Irish dance Cayley scene here in New York. Um, that guy is probably not going to be going back and forth to Ireland a whole lot. It was pretty rough getting over here on the boat. Right. Uh, and there was no recordings of the music that was going on in Ireland or, uh, are here in New York at that time. And there was no telephone and, goodness knows there was no internet, uh, imagine. Uh, so people, so the, the, the flow of culture was often seen as sort of, you know, unidirectional. I mean, imagine the same thing with a Jewish klezmer, uh, musician coming, uh, landing in New York, say in the year 1900, uh, and, uh, you know, escaping the pogroms of Eastern Europe. Um, uh, they're not going to be doing a lot of going back. Uh, so it was a kind of unidirectional flow uh, when that, uh, say clarinet player brought his music here. So, um, what happened effectively in, the, in the, say the second half of the 20th century with the increase in um, mobility because of air travel, uh, increase in communications with telephone, and very important, of course, the, uh, the proliferation of recordings uh, on um, discs, uh, records, that is, um, all of a sudden you could have this real kind of uh, mixing between multiple sites going on. So someone might come from someplace with a music tradition, but they would be going back home on certain, on occasions, and they would be listening to recordings from back home. And uh, so all kinds of mixing could be going on. They could bring traditions from here back home. So now think of uh, somebody in, say, uh, the late 1960s, um, coming from Trinidad to Brooklyn, um, that person would be able to go back home to Carnival in Trinidad uh, and be going back and forth. They could listen to recordings of the latest uh, Calypso songs from Trinidad. Um, they could take recordings of Calypso music made in uh, uh, New York and Brooklyn and take it back to Trinidad. And so you get this idea of a cyclical flow. And that that's what I think we mean by um, diaspora transnationalism. And that's the way you have to understand carnival music uh, in, as part of this system. Again, multi-sites, uh, Trinidad, other Caribbean islands, uh, Brooklyn. There are also big, big um, diasporic carnivals uh, in Toronto and in Notting Hill, London. And those things all form this sort of network. Now, my book is specifically about the diaspora to Brooklyn, or well, to Harlem and Brooklyn. Uh, I just make some slight mention of the other uh carnivals, especially um, Toronto and Notting Hill London uh somebody now needs to take uh on uh, that big project of trying to do a comparative study of those three and maybe add Miami in there for big um uh diaspora carnivals based on the Trinidad model. That would be really interesting. So if there's some ambitious young scholars out there, there's a project for you.
0: Good luck with that, whoever it is. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think helps paint the picture for, you know, this book and how all these different, you know, your case studies that you put in this larger New York scene, where they come from and whatnot. And you really kind of lay that out. I'm ahead, sorry. sorry,
1: Emily. Let, let me just say that when hybridity, just very quickly, you know, this is a uh, concept that's pretty well established now that you you can't study um, uh, African-derived musics, Afro diasporic musics in the New World without you know thinking a lot about hybridity, the blending of cultures, and uh, and we'll see that the forms we're looking at here, um, calypso, uh, steel band, soca, uh, they are a blend. Uh, they're uh, they're heavily African uh, in their um, um, uh, roots and ancestry, but they absorbed a lot of European music too. And that's very much the story of music in the Caribbean. They're, they're uh, uh, hybrids of um, Afro and Euro American musical traditions, uh, although they're actualized primarily by um, Afro Caribbean people, but there's European influence too. So understanding hybridization is, is key to, first of all, understanding the music of the Caribbean. Then you get this second layer of hybridization when uh, people from the Caribbean come to. North America come to New York, Harlem and Brooklyn, and they hear all this other amazing music, jazz and blues and R&B and hip hop, and they start to mix those with their, um, let's say, calypso and soca music. So you get hybridization on top of hybridization and multi-hybridized forms. And in a way, that's what um, soca, soul calypso, that's what it is. So hybridization is central to what we're doing.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, when I think about New York, just kind of in a general sense to the you know larger area, I mean, there's so much going on there with hybridization for sure.
1: Absolutely. Um, and and there's, there's, so much, there's so much more to, to go into that I couldn't do in the book, but I'm just trying to lay out some of the big parameters. Uh, you know, the way um, the different island musics interacted with each other here in New York, the way they interacted with Black American music, with Latin music here in New York, So New York is such an incredible um, melting pot uh, of different music traditions, especially Caribbean traditions, that it's just an amazing place to study.
0: Absolutely. I think there's so much to go into um, there and just that one scene alone, um, let alone the multi-sided idea that you uh, posited to. Backtracking a little bit to something you were getting at earlier, you know, kind of mapping out these networks, you know, in chapter one... I thought it was really useful how you kind of laid out first what was going on with you know Trinidad Carnival historically and kind of as a whole, um, just to kind of again make it easier to follow that network over to New York, of course. And in chapter one, I thought it was interesting how you kind of laid out four different themes about Trinidad Carnival. You know that tradition as participatory ritual, presentation and commodity resistance and identity, and diasporic expression. So how do those four through lines contextualize and help us understand the Harlem and Brooklyn carnivals?
1: Sure. Um, Let let me just say that uh, uh, this first chapter is is really meant for people who may not uh, know so much about Calypso and Steel Band. uh, And it may be that... um, uh, they, some people who do know may want to skip this chapter but I felt like I need to give some foundation um, so uh, you yeah, have beginning it uh, carnival in Trinidad is participatory uh, ritual uh, um, carnival came out of the um, emancipation celebrations of the African slaves uh, the Kambale, um celebrations uh, beginning in the uh, around 1835 and uh, And they were laid on top of the European idea of carnival, the sort of pre-Lent festival. Uh, So, um, you know, it is ritual and people are supposed to participate. Okay, you're supposed to drum and sing and dance and jump up and be part of uh, the ritual. It's not something that's just necessarily stuck on a stage. So it's important to understand that. On the other hand, it has become, by the time we get to the 20th century in Trinidad, uh, there is a strong presentational um, aspect to it uh, and a commodification of it, that we had professional um, calypso singers who would um, uh, you know, perform and be paid. And audiences would sit down in these venues called calypso tents and listen to them sing, uh, the way we maybe think of in a Western idea of a, quote, concert. Um, which was not something that was part of the uh, early Cambolet celebrations where, you know, everybody's in it together, singing and dancing. Um, And then of course you get recordings and all of a sudden recordings are commodifying sound and being sold. Uh, So there's a huge history of the recording of Calypso music uh, in Trinidad and in Harlem and in Brooklyn and so forth. So that's an important part of the story. Uh, I'll just keep running down here. You mentioned that resistance and identity. Um, Well, because, uh, Trinidadian Carnival grew out of um, the Combole uh, emancipation celebrations, um, by nature, it's resistance. It's, it's, it's showing that, you know, the slaves are saying, we're now free, we're, we have resisted and broken the chains. And so that kind of theme continues through, because remember, slavery ends in Trinidad, but the British continue to control things. You know, it's a colony up until the uh, uh, 1960s. So while all this carnival is developing, uh, there is still a very repressive British regime, kind of you know, trying to hold back the uh, majority African population. And and carnival was one way of expressing some resistance to that. Uh, um, sometimes it was just in, in just you know, doing your African drumming and dancing. Uh, there's a lot of satire involved in carnival in terms of the songs and the costumes, and often satirizing the powerful. Uh, and and the British elite uh, or the French elite, uh, uh, so uh, yeah, resistance is um, extremely important, uh, and then establishing this identity um, as African people in the New World. Um, it's a, a diasporic uh, expression, as I said, because you know Trinidad couldn't hold on, couldn't hold its carnival. It just spread out when when people left the Caribbean they brought carnival with them, whether it was Brooklyn or Toronto or London or Washington or um, um, Miami and 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 just the different Caribbean islands. So by its very nature, where Caribbean people land, they seem to bring carnival with them. Uh, so that was the kind of foundation I wanted people to have to now let's look at what actually developed. Let's start with Harlem. So,
0: yeah, I think that helps a lot. Um, and making the text approachable in that way for any kind of reader, which, and, you know, I think is good for understanding those bigger ideas that you were getting at about those four themes, for instance. So, um, and I definitely think you can see those, you know, very evidently in the chapters that follow that more hone in on New York itself. Um, so I, I found that really useful um, as guidepost, if you will. Um, Throughout the rest of the text. And then, um, so also going on to, you know, more of the, you know, New York scene, you know, in chapters two and three, that's kind of where you get into, you know, the heart of the text going into. Talking about how the Calypso shows that first started in Harlem's club and dance halls from the 1930s to 1950s, and then of course carried over into Harlem Carnival from the 1940s and 1960s. So, starting with Harlem, um, what were these performances like, these Calypso performances, in the clubs and halls versus the streets during this time?
1: Well, um, what you got uh, by the um, 1930s was a tradition of having carnival dances in Harlem. Now remember, the initial West Indian population is developing uh basically in Harlem. Some in the South Bronx, some over in Brooklyn, but Harlem was really the center of things um, uh, pre-war and really until the 1960s. So uh, you had these big dance halls and um, people started having these carnival dances around the time that carnival would be taking place back in Trinidad, uh, which was um, you know the, the weekend before Ash Wednesday in February. Uh, and of course, here in New York, it was too cold to be outside doing carnival the way you did in Trinidad, uh, or anywhere in the Caribbean or um, New Orleans. Um, and so people would have dances. And of course, dances, balls, they were part of, of carnival back in, in Trinidad. So it wasn't like some new tradition. And what you would have would be have orchestras, uh, maybe 12-piece orchestras, a rhythm section, a couple of horns, uh, and possibly a singer sometimes, sometimes just instrumental. And they would do calypso tunes that were associated with Carnival back home. Uh, They'd also do Latin numbers like rumbas and tango uh, and occasionally some American uh, popular music music. Like the jazz uh, music, uh, swing music that was popular, Um, so they would have these dances, uh, and you'd have clusters of them uh, in the winter, uh, again celebrating carnival and and build as carnival dances, and um, they were also um, costume dances. And I don't mean like everybody just okay, I'll I'll come with my own costume and let's see what happens. The way we maybe think of a costume party, uh, um, you know, in in the modern uh, America, but groups would get together around a theme. Uh, And the groups were called uh, Moss bands, M-A-S, as in Trinidad. And so they'd all come dressed around a theme, like maybe they'd be Indians, or maybe they'd be sailors, or maybe they'd be um, butterflies, any number of things, but they would come in costumes. And so you'd have your dance. And then at some point uh, uh, they'd have what was called uh, the Dame Lorraine call. The Dame Lorraine was a carnival uh, figure, uh, uh, a, a kind of plump woman uh, who often represented the aristocracy um, who people would satirize and make fun of during carnival. Uh, but they actually called these Dame Lorraine dances, um, but they would have a call and they'd say, okay, now each mass band will get to come out and show their stuff. And, If I could, if I I thought it'd be fun to just read this one little quick section here, because it's uh, out of the New York Sun, which was a New York um, uh, City paper. um, And this, I believe, was 1941. But if I could, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, The Day Lorraine Call at an early Renaissance uh, Casino show. The Renaissance Casino was a big hall okay uh, was preceded by a series of recitations in patois dialogue as masqueraders uh, masqueraders that reeked with the same body humor which marked the Elizabethan era. So you can imagine the sort of almost theatrical kind of presentation from each group of someone reading um, uh, reciting some sort of poem. Then the da- the densely packed dance floor then eventually was taken over by a collection of bats and vampires. It was this last group, rushing onto the floor, screeching and waving their wings, who cleared sufficient space for the rest of the maskers to present tableaus to the judges. The band of bats and vampires was, however, penalized because they persisted in dancing all the time rather than assuming the required final pose in front of the judges. They were demoted to third place, running behind the winning groups of mermaids and a second-place band depicting Cleopatra and her attendants. So that kind of gives you a, a nice sense of what this must have been like The the band is playing a calypso and out these different uh moss bands come and they get out there and dance for a minute and then freeze in a tableau and the judges would look at their costumes and then they would award prizes and of course the idea of uh, prizes for the best costumes was part of the trinidadian carnival tradition so that's carried on but now indoors in these um kind of dances so that's what the dances were like uh And uh, that's what persisted um, up until we finally get our first street carnival in 1947. So what happened then was a woman named Jessie Wardle uh, and a uh, a, a Trinidad mask man named Rufus Gorin um, were finally able to get a permit um, uh, to um, uh, close down uh, an area on 7th Avenue in Harlem and have an outdoor parade. Now, of course... This isn't really going to work very well in uh, uh, February uh, during real carnival season because it's obviously it's cold here, as we all know. Just looking out my window now at the snow. Um, But um, uh, so what they decided to do, and they worked it out with the city, was that they were going to have carnival on Labor Day weekend because that was a weekend when a lot of people were out of town, and you could you could um, close down streets. And so in 1947 they had the first Caribbean carnival in Harlem uh, um, on Labor Day weekend. uh, And and the parade, quote parade, went uh, um, down Fifth Avenue up uh, to, from Fifth Avenue to 110th Street, and then up um, Seventh Avenue up to about 142nd Street, where they um, uh, went to uh, a ballroom and had a dance. And that was the first carnival. Now, it's interesting because the initial parades from, from our, you know, accounts of, you know, oral history and uh, newspaper accounts, um, it was a combination of a conventional, um, let's say, American Western parade that had like, you know, marching bands from high schools and, and uh, people f- representing uh, different community organizations marching along carefully, you know, in line in kind of a military model. But then they had this carnival stuff, people dressed in these wild costumes. And pretty soon, uh, well, let me say the, the initial ones. It, it seems that we think that there were the music was being provided by calypso singers who were on um, t- little flatbed trucks, singing uh, maybe with a couple instruments uh, and um, very light amplification, if any amplification, maybe a bullhorn. Right? Nothing like the thunderous uh, sound trucks that we have today. Um, and so that provided the music for people to. Dance, uh, jump up, if you will, yeah. Uh, and then we get our first reports of steel bands. Uh, and people didn't quite know what to make of these things. Uh, they were, they called them um, kettle drums, uh, and they called them oil drums, and so forth. Um, but the earliest uh, steel pans um, were uh, a steel pan drum cut from an oil drum, uh, a single pan worn around someone's neck with a strap, and it was called Pan Around the Neck. And we have some wonderful pictures of some of these pan bands from the late 40s and into the 1950s. Uh, Rudy King was one of the famous uh, pan men who brought one of the first pan bands out to Harlem Carnival. And when these pan bands would play, people would jump into the street, or jump, you know, off the sidewalks into the streets. And so the whole parade structure would break down and uh, you have more of a carnival feel to it uh, rather than a formal parade. And of course, the authorities didn't always like that. And uh, you know, because they wanted an orderly parade, and the steel bands would slow things down. Um, and so it was a kind of a, a a conundrum for the people organizing it. they They wanted the steel bands there to attract the people, but the steel bands kind of flowed. Things down, uh, and and sort of you know wreck the structure of their uh, carefully uh, put together parade. So uh, this is what went on then for um, 15 years up until uh, the early 1960s. That was what the parade was like uh, in Harlem. And when the parade was over. Uh, people would go into a ballroom and they'd have a dance, similar to what I just described before. And people would come in in costumes and you'd have an orchestra playing Calypso tunes. And some of those Calypso singers would get up and sing. And people really felt a sense of this carnival.
0: That sounds like a blast. Oh my gosh. I would love to have seen that. It's interesting to, you know, the tensions there between kind of like this formality of it versus maybe the more improvisatory aspects of that too um, that sounds like happened with things like getting the permit and whatnot um, for that. So it's really interesting to hear about that history behind that. Um, and then of course that led to the Brooklyn carnival, which you get at in the next chapter four Um you know, saying that that one stemmed from, quote, the mass immigration of English-speaking Caribbean people in the wake of the new 1965 immigration laws. And so you mentioned that Harlem Carnival was a template, more or less, for Brooklyn's carnival. But what differences do we see
1: surface in this Brooklyn version? The main difference, I would say, with the Brooklyn Carnival was just the size or magnitude of it. Um, like the Harlem carnival, uh, uh, there was uh, centered in like one big, well, let's just call it a quote parade or a carnival parade. Uh, but then there were dances, uh, and, and presentations and concerts and so forth before and after. Uh, uh, so, um, in many ways, the, the, the Harlem Parade sort of set the stage for a multi-day long weekend celebration. But the Brooklyn one was much, much bigger. Uh, we have reports of uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people in some of the earliest uh, Eastern Parkway parades, uh, which um, started in 1971. And, and very quickly, people are talking about a million people on Eastern Parkway, uh, which is a lot of people. <laughs> uh, so again, the size and scope of it were, were much more um and i i can go into um and i can go into specifics on that or, or, or what what would you like me to say
0: yeah you can go for it it would be interesting to hear more about that
1: basically the setting uh the way the brooklyn um uh, uh carnival developed was um uh you had a series of of evening concerts in back of the brooklyn museum the brooklyn museum sits uh Right uh, uh, off of Grand Army Plaza, which is the centerpiece of, um, uh, uh, of, of central Brooklyn. Uh, it's the head of Prospect Park. And on the other side is the beginning of Grand Army. Uh, is, and on the other side is uh, the beginning of Eastern Parkway which was Olmsted's grand boulevard that uh, uh headed out east uh uh from central brooklyn and so um in back of the museum they would have calypso concerts uh actually what they would call a demasgra concert uh um uh which would you know kind of uh, help start off a lot of carnival activities uh and um that would feature leading calypsonians um Uh, many of whom were actually brought from Trinidad, which was kind of interesting because now in the 1960s or sorry, the 1970s And now in the 1970s, um, uh, it's easy to bring people up from Trinidad with air flights. You didn't have to put them on a boat and, you know, take a week or something to get up here. People could fly up for concerts and do a few shows and go back home. So you get that more transnational feel to things. Uh, so you had the Moshkraw concerts and then you had steel pan, the steel pan competition or panorama, which, uh, was a big, big deal in Trinidad, um, uh, uh from the, um, I guess the 1960s on uh, and uh Brooklyn has its first panorama in 1972, a year after the first parade. That panorama is also in back of uh, the Brooklyn Museum, uh, not on the scale of the Trinidad uh, panorama by any means. The first Brooklyn panoramas only had maybe half a dozen bands competing. But this idea of having the steel band competition, having a Dimash Graw, uh show, uh, and then having the big uh, what's called the road march, the big parade, um, uh, were based on the Trinidad model. And that's how they developed in Brooklyn. Um, there was one more component and maybe we'll get to this later, uh, of the Brooklyn, uh, carnival called Juve, um, which, uh, was early morning, uh, um, celebration, uh, on Monday morning, uh, Sunday night, Monday morning of, uh, was a big, um, sorry, Jouvet, which was the big, um, celebration kicking off the all of uh carnival events uh would take place sunday night or monday morning uh um and that was not added to the brooklyn carnival until um uh the uh, 1990s so that became a little bit later and maybe we'll wait and talk about that if you want but that's basically how it got established in brooklyn and as a very big big huge event uh Most of the music uh, coming down the parkway during the road march uh, was supplied by steel bands. um, And you have multiple steel pans on racks being rolled and pushed and pulled by people. Eventually, small trucks started pulling them. But you could have 50, 60 people uh, in one of these steel bands uh, coming down Eastern Parkway. And then their fans and the different moss bands, that is the masqueraders, would surround them and up the parkway they would go. Uh, And that was part of this whole just, complete ritualized uh, uh, catharsis, uh, if you will, um, uh, of, of pure joy uh, that, that Carnival was all about. And that was the first thing I saw when I, when I came to Carnival in 1985, it just so pulled me in. Um, what eventually happens is that um, uh, sound systems uh, get bigger and more powerful, and they start to mount the sound systems on trucks. So now you can have trucks, and we're talking big trucks, -trucks, semi-trucks, go down the parkway that would either carry a live band with a lot of amplification, or DJs uh, just spinning the latest discs, Um, but very, very loud, uh, heavy bass-driven music, which was great for dancing. Uh, But not so good for the steel band, uh, because it drowned out the steel pans, and eventually the steel pants uh, steel, um, orchestras began to disappear from Eastern Parkway. It's a slow process beginning in the eighties. And, uh, but by the, uh, nineties, very few steel bands, um, uh, were actually part of the afternoon, uh, road march. Um, and in fact, if you go today, I don't think you'll see a steel band. I don't think I've seen one for several years, uh, on Eastern Parkway. However, the steel bands land in Jouvet, uh, the early morning, uh, uh, parade uh uh where um the organizers decided that they were going to have steel pan only no djs no amplification and so it's a very interesting kind of revitalization and nod toward tradition that they wanted to preserve this older pan on the road they would call it uh and so it's it's you have that too so for people who like the older to actually hear pure steel band music On the road with people jumping up and, you know, dancing along, Uh, you can uh, go to Jouvet. And then if you want the big sound trucks with the latest Soka sound being blasted at bone crushing volume, uh, um, go up the Eastern Parkway and jump up there. So it's kind of, you know, tradition and modernity kind of, uh, you know, uh, all there together for you.
0: Yeah, while we're on Juvé, we can maybe like elaborate on that too um, to give our listeners some context. So you've already talked about some of the differences, particularly for instance, like you were talking about with the steel bands being a little bit more prominent in Juvé, you know, compared to like the main like Brooklyn Carnival. But what are some other differences we see in that early morning um, celebration?
1: Okay, so Juvé means break of day. And Jouvet, uh celebrations in, in Trinidad are what starts the carnival um, uh, weekend, basically. Uh, and so um, uh, people, the Juvet celebration will begin at night. In Brooklyn, it will begin like you know, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. And then continue into the day as the sun comes up. And that's the uh the French for break of day, uh, what it means. Uh, uh, and again, it was honoring uh, or grew out of the emancipation celebrations. And so while well, during the day on the parkway, the costumes are very bright, uh, shiny beads, uh, very fancy, uh, big, um, you know, all kinds of accoutrements uh, with them. In Jouvet, the costumes are very, just the opposite. They're very simple. Uh, they're earthy. Uh, people wear torn up clothes. People put mud on them. People put oil on them. People put paint on them. Uh, and it's all kind of, you know, uh, kind of referencing back to thinking about the slaves. Uh, there are jab-jab uh, devils who dress up as devils uh, and completely blacken themselves as a kind of, again, uh, mocking the, uh, the the devilish masters. uh, um, uh you know, who oversaw the sugarcane fields and so forth. Uh, um, people would 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 dress up in chains again as a, as a, a, a nod towards slavery and so forth. Uh, so the costuming is totally different. And if you go to Jouvet, d- don't wear fancy clothes because people might come up and grab you and get mud and uh, uh, um, uh, paint and stuff on you. I, I have my special Jouvet shirt that I wear. Uh, uh, so um, uh, a very very different kind of feel to the costuming. The music is only acoustic steel band and percussion. There are no um, DJs or sound systems during Jouvet. I don't know how they did it, but amazingly, now uh, for since 1994, when they did the first Jouvet, um, uh those uh, what are we uh, 20, 25 years? Um, uh, they've never had any problem. Nobody has come with sound systems. People respect this idea of let's hear pure steel pan music, unamplified, let's hear uh, percussion ensembles that remind us of our African heritage and so forth. And that's what that celebration is all about. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a classic kind of revitalization movement, what anthropologists would say, and that uh, people were worried that the steel pan on the road was disappearing in Brooklyn. And so they kind of created this Jouvet uh, tradition with no uh, uh, DJs allowed. And what's really interesting, uh, is that Jouvet back in Trinidad, which has a lot of these um, acoustic, a lot of steel bands and percussion ensembles, but they also have um, DJs uh, uh, during Jouvet uh, in um, Trinidad. And so uh, it's kind of interesting that the most pure um, pan music, or the way it, quote, used to be, uh, nostalgic music, is happening in the diaspora, not back in Trinidad. I, I find that. Quite interesting. It's something that probably needs to be explored a little bit more. Anyway, uh, uh, so that's what Jouvet is about. And uh, it's now become an established uh, part of Carnival. It's run by the um, Jouvet City International, which is a different organization than the West Indian American Day Carnival Association, which runs the big um, Eastern Parkway uh, road march and concerts uh, and so forth so um that's kind of the the two parts of carnival that i would say really complement each other uh even though one uh, you know at first sight well one looks real traditional and one looks real modern but uh, uh both are uh, important and many many people go to both of them so uh most interesting
0: yeah that helps a lot with kind of painting the picture of that broader scene i think um and how different the different soundscapes are i guess of those um two different parts. So appreciate that you clarifying all that. I think that will help our listeners quite a bit. Um, and then you also mentioned an organization that I was actually going to ask about the, you know, kind of backing organization of the main Brooklyn carnival, the West Indian American carnival day association. And I found it interesting that in the book, you mentioned that they were promoting a quote unquote one people pan-caribbean narrative in brooklyn carnival at least in the 70s and 80s so you know you were talking about the different you know types of music and that so how did all that music play into that one people theme and you know why were they doing this and how was that narrative received by the communities
1: well very interesting uh uh, carlos losoma who was uh, one of the founding members of the west indian american day carnival association and the president and the, the driving force behind that organization and Brooklyn Carnival for many many years uh, he was a trinidadian who had uh, uh, worked uh, uh, in the uh, transit system in the subways um, but um uh, he quickly realized that um you know uh carnival and carnival music was a way of bringing together or hopefully bringing together uh, the different uh caribbean um immigrant groups, uh, who, from the different islands and nations that were now living in Brooklyn. Now, remember the majority, uh, now remember Trinidadians were not the majority of quote West Indians in Brooklyn. Okay. The biggest numbers were actually from Jamaica. Jamaica did not have a carnival back in the 1970s. They had a they had a bit of a calypso tradition, but you know the music coming out of Jamaica was reggae, right? No carnival tradition, uh, so the whole idea of carnival was a little bit foreign to uh, uh, Brooklyn's largest um, West Indian group. Um, then there were people from other islands. Uh, besides Trinidad, was probably second in terms of population, from what we know. But then you have a lot of people from Barbados, uh, coastal Guyana, um, Grenada, uh, Saint Lucia, um, uh, particularly uh, Saint Vincent antigua and you know those places some of them had carnivals uh, but they weren't as developed as trinidad's uh and uh a few of them like antigua and uh, had had some steel band tradition but not a lot uh so all of a sudden they're being presented with you know all these west indian people um uh, some of who are not that familiar with carnival are being presented with okay here's this event you all need to come together because we can all be one uh but the whole model was trinidadian and Lozoma and the people who were running the West Indian American Day Carnival Association were Trinidadian, almost all of them. So there was that tension there, you know, are, are we all one or not? And musically, the biggest kind of way that that manifests itself, that tension, uh, was the uh, kind of uh, uh, sonic battles between reggae music obviously Jamaican music, right, which was coming out of sound systems initially on the sides of Eastern Parkway, uh, set up on the road on the side, uh, and the uh, uh, calypso and soca music, which was Trinidadian, which was coming off the trucks and the steel bands going down the parkway. And eventually the reggae, uh, um, uh, uh, the the Jamaicans uh, got their uh, sound trucks also uh, to um, play reggae music. And so when you go out there on the Parkway, yeah, you got all these Caribbean people together, which is what Laszlo wanted. But in certain ways, music kind of helped keep them a little bit apart. I, I like to think of it as as, as the Parkway is like a, a, a you know the Caribbean Sea, the ocean, and then you have these different islands, and the islands are the sound trucks uh, with people around them. But there'll be a Trinidadian sound truck playing the latest Trinidadian soca tune and everybody waving their Trinidadian flags. And then along will come another truck with playing reggae with surrounded by people wearing um, uh, Jamaican flag paraphernalia and waving Jamaican flags. And then there'll be one from Barbados uh, that's uh, playing the music of one of the Barbadian uh, Calypso singers and people will have their Barbadian flags. So it's interesting. In one way, we're all one that we're out here on the parkway, uh, but we're still maintaining our kind of little tribal island groups. They still kind of, um, you know, form their own little uh, tribal island groups, uh, uh, which is really interesting. But again, I think it's a way of mediating the kind of dual identities that people have. Yes, I'm Afro-Caribbean, but I'm also Trinidadian. OK. And that's different than Jamaican. And yet I'm part of the Caribbean, West Indian community and we're all out here. So um, in a way, I think the parade and the music's help people maintain identity while also feeling some sense of, of coming together. Now, the steel bands are also problematic in sense of creating, you know, we are all one because steel bands came from Trinidad. And everybody agrees on that. And when you read the, um, uh, the publicity that the West Indian American Dick Carnival Association puts out and the annual booklets that they put out, they make a big deal. Steel pan is the Trinidadian national instrument. And it did spread to some other islands. So you have some steel pan traditions in Antigua and uh, Coastal Guyana and so forth. Um, but this is Trinidadian music. And if you look at the early steel bands in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly... Trinidadians playing. All the arrangers, all the band leaders were Trinidadian. All the music that was being played were the Calypsos from Trinidad. Uh, I think there was one group uh, from uh, the Virgin Islands that uh, competed once in Panorama, Uh, but almost all the groups were Trinidadian. Now, slowly that's changed, and you see more and more people from different islands coming in uh, to the steel bands. So you get more people, say, well, say from Jamaica or Grenada or Barbados uh, playing in these bands, but there's still the model is Trinidadian. It's Trinidadian, uh, a, a Trinidadian instrument. Trinidadians are the arrangers. The tunes are from Trinidad. And so, again, there's a, a bit of a tension there in terms of creating a, a really, uh, what would you say, more kind of ecumenical, uh, diverse uh, uh, Caribbean um, um, unit. It's still Trinidad kind of uh, rules heavily in terms of, of the steel bands. So that's that's a bit of a, a paradox is just as how how much did the music really make us all one? uh and again i think it's just one of those dialectic tensions that uh, uh on one hand yeah we, we're all playing this and we recognize that we're all from the caribbean west indies but we still have individual you know island affiliations when it comes to steel band it's really a trinidadian uh uh tradition so
0: interesting yeah definitely some dissonance on that would interesting though like uh representations and all of that um and i was thinking about it with- we've been talking a lot about so far more what's been going on with these kind of live performances, either in the, you know, private venues or in the streets, but we haven't really talked about recordings yet. So, you know, in your chapter six to seven, you talk a lot about um, Brooklyn soca recordings from like the seventies to the 1990s. So can you talk a little bit about those and how those also kind of reflect what we were just talking about these Trinidadian And as well as
1: like larger U.S. influences. Sure. Well, first of all, to take a bigger historical scope, you have to understand that many of the first recordings of Calypso music going back to the 1920s were actually made in New York. Not Trinidad because they didn't have recording studios back then in Trinidad of, of, of any uh, of size and quality so most of the early recordings of calypso music from the especially from the 20s and 30s uh, into the 40s most of them were made either here in New York or by American companies that went down to Trinidad you know with portable stuff so uh, that changes uh, in the 50s and 60s and and, and, and uh, uh, more studios start to develop in Trinidad and recording goes on there. But getting back to your question about uh, soca music, uh, which is developing in the uh, 1970s, what happened was that Brooklyn became a center for the recording of a lot of soca music uh, beginning uh, really in the 1970s. And that was due um, very much uh, because of two individuals. Um, Granville Straker, who owns Straker Records, and anyone who knows anything about Calypso, you know that many of the records that were made in the 60s, 70, or, sorry, the 70s, and 80s, and 90s came on Straker Records. Uh, he was from St. Vincent, interestingly enough, and he came here as an immigrant. He was a, a cab driver, uh, um, and then he started selling records out of, uh, of, out of a shop, and eventually he developed his own record company called Straker Records. The other uh, uh, individual who was important here was Ralston Charles uh, similar, um, biography, except he came, he was uh, born in Tobago, but, you know, grew up in, uh, Port of Spain in Trinidad. Uh, and, um, then he came, uh, to, uh, Brooklyn in, I think 1967, you know, right on, right as the, the, um, new immigration law was, was opening up for people to come. And he, uh, eventually starts a record store and then his own recording company, Charlie's Records. Uh, a little bit later, a guy named Michael Gould founded Bees Records. Uh, so b- by the time you get to 1980, um, all the best recording studios were here in Brooklyn uh, and Manhattan. Sometimes they go to Manhattan to record, but here in New York, not back in Trinidad. And you have these entrepreneurs, Straker um, uh, and Charles, who put these big companies together. They brought Calypsonians up from uh, Trinidad and and. St. Vincent and other islands. They would record them. Uh, and then they would press their records. And the records would be sold here in Brooklyn to the growing West Indian population who wanted music from back home. And the records, would, of course, would be sent back to Trinidad and the other islands where they'd sell there. So now, again, you get this transnational loop we're talking about, right? Uh, and, and Brooklyn becomes very central. Uh, it ended up that a number of the important people who arranged the music, um, uh, who uh, would score out the parts for the band and organize the recording sessions, um, also uh, were based here in Brooklyn. Um, The most important of them was Frankie McIntosh, also from St. Vincent, uh, but who uh, came to to, um, New York in 1969, went to Brooklyn College and got a uh, bachelor's degree in music and then a master's degree from NYU. And he became like Brooklyn's main arranger of soca music, uh, working for Granville Straker um, in the... uh, 70s uh, and 80s. I'm sorry, did I say he, he was also from St. Vincent, not Trinidad. Uh, Frankie McIntosh was from St. Vincent. Um, and uh, so n- New York, I mean, at Brooklyn. And so Brooklyn sort of becomes this hub, if you will, of, of soca music with people um, coming here. Some Calypsonians actually move here to New York uh, and use New York as their base. Important people like the Mighty Sparrow, who is probably the most important Calypsoian of his generation. He moves to Queens uh, in the 1960s, and he's back and forth between here and Trinidad. Calypso Rose, the queen of Calypso music, uh, the most important female Calypsoian, uh, moves to New York uh, in the 19 um, oh late 1970s. Um, Uh, Lord Nelson, uh, another great Calypsonian uh, 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 from Tobago and Trinidad, uh, moves here uh, actually in the late 1950s and takes her up residency here. So you had people who lived here, you had people visiting, and um, uh, New York becomes really, uh, and particularly Brooklyn, becomes the center of the Soka world in the 1980s. let, let me give you an example, if I could, uh, of a song that really, I think, tells this story well. So Calypso Rose um, uh, comes to New York. Um, she has um, finally won the Calypso um, monarchy uh, in, in Trinidad, first woman to do so. Uh, and, but she's, she sees there's more proper opportunity here in New York in terms of playing engagements and recording. So she moves to New York. But she also needs a day job, so she um, uh, decides she's going to get trained uh, in some sort of health field, uh, and she's taking classes in Manhattan for it. So one day, she's riding the uh, F train in from Queens to Manhattan, and she's like grooving on the clickety-clickety-clickety-clickety-clickety-clickety of the, of the train tracks. So she gets to her um, school where she's uh, you know taking this class, runs into the women's room, and writes the lyrics To a song called give me tempo and that was you know inspired by this subway sound now the song itself is actually about going to carnival in san fernando in uh in trinidad all right so she did what people did back then she takes her guitar and puts on a cassette recorder some of your older uh, listeners may remember what cassette recordings are uh and you know sings the song takes the cassette brings it over to Ralston Charles, uh, who has his record store and uh, company there on Fulton Street in Brooklyn. So uh, Charlie, people refer to him as Charlie, listens to him and say, yeah, I think this is really something good. So he sends the cassette down to Trinidad uh, and has an arranger try to put a part to it. So next trip down to Trinidad, Charlie stops in and sees this guy, listens to his arranger, he says, nah, I don't really like this. Uh, and so he takes it to another arranger, a guy named Pelham Goddard, who was kind of unheard of at that point in Trinidad. And Goddard puts a uh, tune together, uh, an arrangement together, um, and they record the rhythm section and the horns, and they send those tapes back to Brooklyn. uh, And then Rose comes in and sings the main vocal. Charlie puts the whole thing together and has a record that he's selling both in Brooklyn and in Trinidad, And in Trinidad, it's so popular, it wins what's called the Road March, which is the most popular uh, Calypso Soca tune of the year. In 1977, first time a woman had ever uh, won the Road March. So there you go. Give me tempo. You know, is it a Brooklyn song? Is it, is it a Trinidad song? It's, it's a transnational song, the way it was all put together. Uh, so I, I think that's a wonderful example that shows the importance of Brooklyn. And yet the, you know, the sort of this interaction between Brooklyn and Trinidad, uh, which created this really great soca music uh, during the 70s and 80s. Whew, what a story. Yeah,
0: um- yeah. Oh my goodness. So much back and forth with just that one like example. I um, imagine it's really interesting to trace all that, that, again, that network, like we were talking about at the beginning, um, with that specific genre. And while we're talking about Soka too, you're working on another project,
1: correct, on Soka? Yeah. I think one of the things that came out of this book, of Jump Up, uh, was just how important Brooklyn was as a, as a, a hub of soca music, uh, during this period, I'd say again, late seventies, uh, into, uh, the early nineties. And so I'm thinking of some way of doing a follow-up on that. And, um, right now I'm working with a guy I mentioned before, Frankie McIntosh, who is, um, I'm working with this guy I mentioned before, Frankie McIntosh, who is one of the most, uh, important, uh Soka uh arrangers at that time and who was in brooklyn the whole time and uh, had easy access to straker and to uh ralston charles and they'd send calypsonians over to his house and he, they'd sing uh their song for him and frankie would uh write out the parts and come up with the harmonies for the chords he would uh then call a re- call a recording session get the musicians that would play and you know that's how this music was recorded Anyway, uh, I've I'm, I'm been uh, doing a lot of work with him this fall, just doing a lot of interviews about his life. Uh, he came from St. Vincent. Uh, his father played in a Calypso orchestra in St. Vincent, and that's where Frankie started, like when he was 12 years old. Uh, he told me a great story about hearing Calypso Rose visit uh, uh, when when he was only 12 uh, and, and before she was famous. But anyway, as I say, just his life story is, is very interesting, uh, the way he, he um, eventually comes to uh, the united states and settles in brooklyn and so forth and becomes this incredible uh silk ranger and I, i'm hoping to somehow that together collaboratively we can kind of tell a story of uh um brooklyn silica music in, in a lot more detail than what i do in the jump up book and i i'm also really interested in trying to work collaboratively you know i, I don't want to just do another book on okay here's silica music here's my view of it as this you know, uh, the white ethnomusicologist looking in. Uh, I, I really want to work within the community and, uh, you know, empower his voice uh, and see if we can come up with some sort of collaborative text. I, don't yet know how that's going to happen. Uh, he and I are working at it and talking about it. Uh, he's an interesting fellow because he, as I said, he was trained in music. And in fact, his knowledge and skills in terms of music theory um, are um, definitely outstrip mine. So, you know, we're, we're an interesting kind of pair, uh, if you will. Uh, and um, we'll see what comes out of that. But But I hope uh, you know, maybe in a couple of years, you can bring me back on your pa- uh, podcast here, and we can talk a little bit more about uh, uh, Frankie McIntosh and Brooklyn Soaker music. So that's that's the fantasy at this point. We'll see how that plays out.
0: That sounds great, and Frankie McIntosh can join us, and so we can have a great talk and learn Absolutely. more about that collaborative Absolutely. process. <laughs> that sounds like a great time. Well, thank you, Ray, so much for joining us today. We had a great time talking with you.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been uh, an honor to be here and um, I hope people enjoy the book and, um, you know, I hope we can talk again soon.
0: Yeah, sounds great. And listeners, of course, we appreciate you as well. Um, As a recap, this is the end of an interview with Dr. Ray Allen author of Jump Up! Caribbean Carnival Music in New York City, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. This is Emily Allen, and please join me next time here on New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series from the New Books Network.